0: Welcome to the Edge of the Sticker podcast with Brad and Bobby Frank. Hi, Brad.
1: Hi, Bobby. Well, our prep is done. (laughs) We got that finished. That was an arduous one today.
0: I know. You know, I feel like we've got a really good topic, though, and it's going to be... it's going to be easy and flowing.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm thankful for our production crew and our researchers who were able to really put it together for us this week.
0: I'm pretty sure this is going to be the best podcast <laughs> that we have ever done. the, greatest, the greatest of all, all time. time. <laughs> <It> Absolutely.
1: <will. laughs> and We're going to destroy it. It's going to, it's going to come down to that.
0: Yeah, just going to crush it. Going to
1: <laughs> kill, kill it. Kill this. Yes. And, you know, it'll be so devastating afterwards that, you know, how will people be able to put their lives back together after hearing
0: it? It's going to take a long time to pick up the pieces and to really, you know, get back into the game.
1: Yeah, there may not be a game left after this. This is this is game changing. If maybe game ending.
0: Yeah, most most likely this is uh, this is kind of redefining the entire the entire deal. So so what's on your mind?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, interesting that you would ask that. Because I've been, uh, as, I, as I've been scrolling and reading and listening over the course of the last several weeks, I, I've just continued to find it fascinating the level of hyperbole that is used in language. Um, certainly as a way of garnering our attention and keeping us interested, but the uh, the number of things that are, are the goat, the greatest of all time, um, you know, would suggest that maybe we sort of from the Princess Bride, you know, maybe you don't know what that word actually means, um, and that particularly with with political speech, you know, the goal is to destroy hmm. people, to kill them, and th- there there's no room for disagreement. There's only room for uh, absolute demolishing domination and, uh, yeah domination to the point where the other person is subjugated and controlled so i i, I read this stuff and just find myself noting the frequency of it A- and also noting what my reaction is which is if something is if that's the language that's chosen it automatically. In in my to my eyes, loses credibility. Hmm. You know that if it has to be, if it has to be put in such stark terms, with lack of nuance or understanding of context or balance of, um, you know, recognizing the the possibility of other interpretations or other ideas, that the the source just right then and there goes from possibly valid to ignore this and move on. Um, And that's, it doesn't matter what side of the, of the argument it is, you know, and and whether it's about sports or about politics or about, you know, restaurants and, and, you know, the best burger or whatever it is, it's, it's, you know, without, without that context really just, it's just not worth reading anymore. It seems at least that's, that's how I've,
0: I mean, it it kind of depends on who's saying it and where it's being said. So if it's in, you know, if it's a camera shot inside a football huddle where they're getting ready for a play, let's crush them. That's something as a call to action.
1: It's different. But even in the, the warm up, let's crush them huddle, it just feels like the level of antipathy and aggression and, um, you know, focus on destruction has ramped up now. You know, I I haven't seen many, many huddles from 1945 or or whatever the date may have been. Um, So I cannot say that, you know, their idea was let's win and do it with (laughs) sportsmanship and and a plume. (laughs) Perhaps let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the, the, the need to, to kill and to just just eviscerate um, just seems to have gotten. Maybe I'm just more aware of it. It's always been there. Um, well,
0: because it's all and- over everything political, and it's all over MSNBC and Twitter, and you know, every single partisan thing has that feel to it
1: now. Yeah.
0: You know, we've got to crush this movement. We've got to, Ron DeSantis, crush the woke movement.
1: It's where woke goes to die, right? That's what Florida is, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. And it's, it it does inspire the thinking of, what the hell are these people talking about?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, particularly for, maybe for, for wokeness now, because it's so, it's so politically expedient, even though they can't seem to define it. Yeah. Um. I, I, this call to action, I mean, it, it's not, and it's not even a call to action anymore. It's sort of a call to arms, which is, is what, and, and maybe not literally from the standpoint of, of pick up your guns and walk into the streets and find people who are wearing the other Jersey and shoot them, <laughs> well, but
0: certainly, or maybe it is,
1: <laughs> or maybe, maybe it is, um, you know, I, I guess I continue to believe that the vast majority of people don't, don't hear that, um, but there is the sense of we've just we've got to devote our energy to not trying to explain ourselves, but just to dominate, and mm. that doesn't feel like a like a <laughs> touchy feely, warm fuzzy kind of place that that you want to be in, um, and maybe people don't want touchy feely, warm fuzzy. So why do you think it is? I, I think it's fear you know there there's a sense of this this us versus them and that they are coming to get us and take everything about us that we value and so you got to be able to defend that in some way and words better than actions for sure uh you know in a sticks and stones may may break my bones but names will never hurt me kind of a thing um better that than the than the sticks and stones or the the knives and and guns, Mm -hmm. but it's still, it's still an expression of aggression. And, and, and my sense is that it, it really is that, that lack of confidence in your own stability, what your life is, what your life has been and what your life will be and needing then to find a way to, to defend it. Yeah. Um, and so we end up we, we call it we call it just by by more aggressive names and but you know language matters and it matters in the in the way that we talk to ourselves you know how we what our what words we choose to define who we are and how we feel about ourselves mm-hmm. um, I was talking to to somebody the other day and and his comment. About a mistake that he had made was that was so stupid, and you could you could just kind of feel the the self derision in 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 what he said. And the reality was that the mistake that he made was naive. He he made it because he didn't know any better. Um, It wasn't as if he had been taught and then. Um, opted against what he had been taught or he'd forgotten what he'd been taught. He just he just didn't know. And so he was in a naive way pursuing, you know, this course of action only then to be stymied and to be kind of called out and said, you know, that was not the right way. And so he was just really beating himself up about it. it you know, if his, if his response would have been, you know, my bad, <laughs> didn't know, now I know, and I will do better going forward, then his reaction, his his self-worth wouldn't have been damaged by that. But he was just, you know, like I said, beating himself up. So the, the language that we use really has a, an impact on how we feel and, and on our emotions. Um, and the more that you begin to feel as if you are worth less or worthless, or that you have you are impotent or you'd lack power, then like a cat that gets scared, who who kind of puffs up as a defense mm-hmm. mechanism. I think that we do that with our language and, and we respond to other people who seem to have the wherewithal, the power and align with them who can defend us when we are fearful. And that just creates this, this ramp up of, um, ever more intense language and, uh, and ideas. So I, I think that's the mechanism that happens, but I think it's, it's coming out of fear.
0: So how do you, uh, kind of curtail that?
1: Yeah. Um, I wish I had the answer for that. one. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you know, what, what I found for myself and I, I referenced it just a couple of minutes ago is when, when that language is used, when that, that, hyperbole comes out then i just tend to sort of shut it off i shut off the source um or i stop i don't use that source as a as a place where i can get reliable information Mm -hmm. it may be entertaining it may be something that i i want to read as a way of gathering data about this trend but if they're asserting something trying to Give me some fact about whatever it is, then I'm much less likely to to believe it, um, because I, I think what it does is it, it just takes away credibility. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that you know the sports analogy is, is a good one. I mean you can you can read about how X team is going to be you know amazing this year, or or that their their athletes have. Are, are better than whatever, you know, and, and, and just the best, the goats or whatever. And I, it's like, okay, well, this is not a source that I'm going to use to really fairly ascertain what the likelihood of this team's success is going to be. Yeah. Uh, a more measured and, um, I mean, I guess in some ways, quiet assertion just hits my ears better. Now, you know, I'm, I'm old and I don't have, you know, I'm not that the, the, the hip person who's, who's in pop culture and aware of what's going on in a way that maybe these people are writing for. But, um, you know, maybe this is just another example of your music is too loud and it should be, you know, why aren't we <laughs> listening to Burt ba- Bert Bacharach? Because that's real <laughs> music. <laughs> Get off
0: of my lawn. <laughs> uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's actually two things come to mind. First is that I, a friend of mine, my my bass player partner, constantly reacts to me when I, I tend to describe, you know, a concert that we've played or a show or whatever as, man, that was the best one we've had. It was great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And it's, it's, I don't know, it's excitement. And I, I mean, it's, it's the way I feel at the moment is that, you know, mm-hmm. God, that was really great. That was, that was the best that we've ever played. And, you know, and it should be because every time should be better and better, you know, in yeah. theory. So it's not an unreasonable assertion. Uh, it's not necessarily entirely accurate and maybe, if I was telling you that now I know that you'd be like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That show probably sucked, but (laughs) I'm not even listening to him anymore. Um, (laughs) But the other thing is that, um, I've been working on this writing project, uh, for a a cable company or not a cable company, a fiber optic internet company. Um, so just writing articles, uh, about you know why you should sign up for this particular company and in their style guide there's a whole section of instead of writing this write this you know if you want to mm-hmm. say we have good high-speed internet you know don't say that instead say this internet is you know one gigabit and we'll provide blah 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 so it's it's very much a uh it's kind of a hyperbole reduction section Mm -hmm. of their style guide to uh, try and get that out. And that's not uncommon. I mean, a lot of times with, with, you know, projects for, for a reasonable size or an established company that's got their brand kind of defined, I'll get something like that. um, that really describes what the voice is or for another client, I'm writing that for them. So, you know, defining what the brand voice is. And it's kind of the same thing that you're describing. Um, it's how do you speak in that voice in a way that's credible and believable without promising too much or without all the hyperbole or any of the, uh, the things that could be off putting. Um, and it's just baked in, it's baked into that messaging and into those, yeah, those brand, uh, communications. So anyway, it's, it's just interesting. So that's one way that it's controlled. And I guess that's, it filters down into conversation as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. And and I, I'll if we take it from the communication of ideas to the outside world and and visit it instead on on our self image and the way that we think of ourselves. One of the images or or ideas that i use when i work with people is the difference between yourself and and your capital letter self so for bobby you know the capital b bobby Mm. and the capital b bobby would be more along the lines of what you described after a show it was the best ever and it was fantastic and and we've never sounded so good and and we were able we were on the same we were on the same we were in the vibe we were on the same plane we got it and and this is amazing which may well be true but what it does is it either consciously or unconsciously sets up an expectation that that's who you're going to be. And that's who you have to be all the time. And it's really hard to live that way all the time. It's hard to be, you know, your capital letter self within everything that you do and every interaction that you have. And it creates this unquenchable thirst for continual progress, continual um, success, continual, almost grandiosity. Mm. And there is it. So imagine a first date. This I think is a good way to put it. If you go, if you go on a first date with somebody and you show yourself as, you know, the capital letter version of yourself, where you are giving the absolute highest level, probably stretching some credibility a little bit, embellishing whatever you're doing. And as a result of that first date, it goes well, and you go on a second date. Well, the second date also mandates that you at least achieve that level of capital letter self so that you can maintain and accelerate the momentum of what that first date started. Now, at some point, it's predictable that that facade that you've put forth is going to crack. And at that point, if you're at date three or date 30, there's going to be a comeuppance in the relationship that you've started because you started it on false pretenses, right? You weren't actually being yourself. You were being this this projected, better-than-real-life self. My assertion is that you are much better off on date one being real, authentic Bobby because you're going to save yourself a whole lot of pain in subsequent dates. Now it may not go great and it may not you may not get a second date as a result of it, but if you're having to put forth that facade in order to get the second date, then you are not creating something that's sustainable over time. So, you know, the the rule out, it's easier to the the upset over a no second date is much lower than the upset over a no 30th date. Yeah. Because there's so much more invested by the time you get there. And when you realize that you cannot sustain this, this image that you've put forth and you have to admit to it, then everything that's foundational in the relationship gets questioned. So much better to just be honest, to be realistic, and you know to admit to things. So if, if the first date is, hey, let's go get Italian food, and your response is, absolutely, I love Italian food – but you hate Italian food and you go anywhere, just go anyway, just because that's what you do. You know, by the fourth day, it's, I'm ready for Italian again. Me too. At some point you're going to have to say, I can't stand this. Why do we have to keep going back? But, but you said you loved it. Yeah. And, and then, you know, things unravel. Now, obviously that's a silly example.
0: I was watching some movie the other day or TV show, um, where a couple that had been together for 20 years got divorced and then they got back together. And at the first, I think it was one of their birthdays and partner made a certain cake. He ate the cake and he said, you know, I got to be honest. I've always hated this cake. <laughs> and and she, she was like, I've been making this for you for 33 years because I thought you liked it. And I hate making this cake. And, you know, it's
1: this whole thing. Yeah. So so I think what that taps into, and this can be individually or it could be within the, the broader context of um, sports or politics or whatever, is – if you can just be honest about what you're looking for, honest about what's important to you, then so much of that hyperbole falls away. So just think politically for a second. Um, whatever side, whichever side you're on, and, and there are only two apparently, so you know, you're, you're either red or you're blue, um, more than likely, you can look at the, the full menu of stances or policies or, or, or personalities. On your side. Mm-hmm. And you can identify a few or maybe a whole lot of those things that you think, yeah, I'm not really thrilled with that. Don't love that. But I've got to, since I have to choose, I'm going with this. Now imagine if instead of having to just buy in and, and wholeheartedly destroy the other side and, and protect your side, if there could be a more nuanced and critical understanding and exploration of the the policies that are that are there, the people that are there. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you could say, hey, some of the Republican policies make sense, but Trump absolutely cannot be elected. And if we have to sit out in a, a cycle so that he doesn't get elected, so we can get some normalcy back, then I'm willing to do that rather than saying, you know, I'm I'm in for a penny, in for a pound, kill the Democrats, get rid of everybody there. They're crazy, or however it may be characterized. Yeah. If if we're not having to always be a hundred percent go team and can instead look at look at the individual players, look at the individual plays and decide, yeah, I'm not I'm not buying this one. Mm-hmm. I, I think that opens up some possibility to back away from this continued escalation of, of hyperbolic and negative and aggressive speech. I was um, talking to an investigator this week at a case that I had to testify in, and um, it was, the, the, the comment that I made was, you know, th- there are probably some people who are just, just downright evil. And that they do horrible things and, you know, they're psychopathic. They do horrible things for self gratification, but most people, um, they screw up not because they woke up in the morning and decided to screw up, but because of circumstances or impulsivity or substances or whatever. And that what I try to do is not view somebody or judge somebody by the absolute worst moment of their life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the context of people who are in prison for, for an act, um, Yes, those, what they did, assuming that they did it and assuming that they're rightfully convicted, it, it merits that kind of punishment. But does it invalidate them as a person? And, and my, my goal is to try to answer that question as no, it does not invalidate them. That they, yeah, they screwed up. They did something awful. And they, there needs to be some acknowledgement, punishment, retribution, rehabilitation, something that goes with that. But is that all that they are? And when we, when we take such a macro view of, of people, you know, we zoom out and we don't look at context. We don't look at anything other than, than the act or the identification, Mm -hmm. they identify with this party, they, they identify with that team. Um, then we lose the ability to see them as people. We lose them to the ability to see that, you know, yeah, they, they did these horrible things, but they also had this part of their life they've got a, a mother that loves them or, or, you know, an aunt that they helped or, or whatever at some point. And, and knowing that and, and keeping that in mind, I, again, I think keeps us from pulling out the, the fire and wanting to burn them at the stake because most people don't deserve that. And most people can admit that they screwed up and maybe, even admit that they need to have consequences as a, as a result, but when we lump them all into these these capital letter groups, you know this is all that they are. It's all they will ever be. It's just so easy to dismiss them. It's so easy to to decide that there's nothing that's um, that's possible, positive or no possibility of change or, or common ground. It just, it makes life that much harder. I mean, it's, I guess I'll say it differently. It makes it easier for those of us who bear witness to it, who say, yeah, okay, yeah, that happens. They're on that team. We don't have to think about him again. So no resources have to be diverted to them, including our own emotional resources, maybe empathy or anything else. Um, but it, it also makes it harder to get out of your rigid stance of the way the world is. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, we want things to be predictable and put into a box. And when they're not, that's anxiety provoking. Mm-hmm. And to deal with it, you got to do research. You got to meet people. You got to talk about it. You got to admit your own fears and your own, your own lack of knowledge, your own ignorance. Um, and that's, that's takes effort.
0: Yeah. Not easy to do. Especially when you're the greatest of all time.